Hello again. Welcome to the Ask LFC podcast. Uh, this is episode 18. I am Harrison. I am a worship arts director here at Lake Forest in Huntersville, sitting here with Mike. Hey, Mike Moses, lead pastor of Lake Forest Church, Huntersville, uh, and actually the founding pastor of Lake Forest Family of Churches, uh, which I love being a part of. That's right. It is uh, 4th of July weekend is coming up and we are sitting here once again in our green room sitting backstage in our uh, campus here at Huntersville we have here over the last little bit it's been uh, it's been nice seeing that our defined coffee area starting to fill back up in a good way with people who are distance and masked and all that stuff yeah yeah the defined coffee owner and employees are masking responsibly uh, we're cleaning that area. They're cleaning the area. We've got the seating distanced, and people are doing a good job of being faithful to, as we're required to now, uh, coming in with masks on through the lobby space. And then once you're seated with yourself and or another person, uh, can take the mask off. So it's, it's been good to see. Just as a general thought, one thing that I've really loved about the past couple of years, ever since we, uh, if <clears throat> if you've only been a part of, Lake Forest here for a year or so. You may not even know at this point about something called Immeasurably More mm-hmm. that we did where uh, our lobby area used to end halfway where it does now, where there's the big fireplace in the middle. That was the wall. That was the, and then the rest was outside area. And uh, one of the things that, that we wanted to do as a strategic uh, plan for our church was to build this extra space and had this partnership develop. Uh, with our friend Kiefer and man, our, our building looks so different just in terms yeah. of the vibe, not even obviously physically it looks different, but the vibe on campus here on a random Wednesday morning on July 1st is way yeah. different than yeah. it would have well, been. Well, serving young families so uh, that young parents can go to work during this time with our preschool and they're in and out of the, the campus. And then we have meeting spaces. Just yesterday made me happy to see the leadership uh, staff of Hopewell High School. I should have pointed oh, them cool. out to you that the yeah. athletic director was here. They were having us a planning meeting, scenarioing for how they're going to handle things. We've developed a close partnership for them. We've seen other companies kind of renew using our space for meetings. So love seeing that. My son who plays baseball at Hopewell would have really appreciated if I would have put on some disguise and walked in and been like, I think we should have sports this year. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, believe me, he's uh, <laughs> our friend. There is is torqued up about those decisions. So I'm sure um, they're thinking about it. But anyways, we're we're just glad uh, Lake Forest. You guys have have invested in making this a space where people in our community can come and hang out and feel comfortable and come be in a church without having to be in a church. And we've seen over the past couple of years that that has been a real tangible first step for some folks a, a front door of de-weirding church and its space to people who may have given up on church but not on god and we we one of our newest staff members we told the story if you guys were in worship in i don't know what month that was may or june yeah uh one of our new staff members who uh had given up on church but but was in the coffee space and started asking questions and now is really vitalized she and her family and her walk with christ and serving the rest of us on staff. Very good. Well, we, we have a couple of questions to get into today. One uh, we had sent in uh, from one of our ministry partners. It was a follow-up to the teaching from Sunday. And then uh, I just had a couple extra 
questions to get into, Mike, that I think um, some folks and myself will be curious to hear a little bit more about. But we'll start with this. Um, we are in a series right now called God Stories, and we're taking a look at some, uh, generally speaking, some uh, a handful of these folks are a little bit more obscure. You don't hear a full sermon uh, like we did on Sunday about Melchizedek. Um, so, and we've been seeing how uh, how God worked in their story, how that applies to our story. So, here's our first question uh, from our friend Tim. It says, "How would you interpret Hebrews seven three about Melchizedek?" The passage says, "Without father or mother, without genealogy." Without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Which seems super clear to me, but I'll let you take it, because I mean, obviously I know, but <laughs> if you want to just just say what we're all thinking. I enjoyed uh, the research for this week's sermon on Melchizedek. It's in, if you weren't there, it's Genesis chapter 14. Um, it's a, a very brief encounter. There are only three or four verses in which Melchizedek enters the stage of uh, God's recorded story. Uh, so that's a great question uh, that that person offered because then Melchizedek is reflected upon theologically, his theological, so his historical uh, activities that we know about and significance are found in Genesis 14 in the account of what happened. Then the author of Hebrews in the New Testament 2,000 years later, for very specific reasons, reflects theologically on the, the significance, the, uh, the ways that Melchizedek's very position, as he's named a priest of God Most High in Genesis 14, how that actually reflected forward into understanding Jesus better as the Messiah and our high priest. So that verse... Hebrews 7, 3, and, and if you guys didn't hear the sermon, just bear with us for a second. Uh, that verse has been, uh, based on that verse, that he, hey, Melchizedek has no genealogy, no mother or father, no beginning or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he's a priest forever. Based on this, uh, some, some interpreters concluded that, well, well was Mel- Melchizedek must have been an angel. Because there are examples of that in the Old Testament. We're always told that, however. When an angel takes on a personified form of a human being for a specific divine purpose. That happens. It happens elsewhere in Abraham's story, actually. Um, uh, others, uh, more commonly, will interpret, will use the Hebrews writer uh, about this fact that he has no genealogy. Melchizedek has no genealogy, to, to go as far as to say, well, we think that Melchizedek is a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Hmm. Uh, in other words, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, who took on human form in 2,000 years after Melchizedek. Uh, and there are one or two instances in the Old Testament in which... Bible interpreters and scholars uh, see perhaps, again, a pre-incarnate, that's a very specific word, appearance of Christ. Um, but here, here's what I did not, the, the, the questioner is astute, and, and what they're getting at would have been the next level of the sermon, uh, actually. Uh, we're, we're trying to shorten the sermon a little bit <laughs> during 
time when most people are worshiping online and some people are trying to wrangle their kids. Sometimes people are wrangling their dog and everybody is wrangling. Can they put their phone down and pay attention for this long of a time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're trying to shorten things up just a little bit. And so this would have been a good next level to deal more with Hebrews chapter 7. I'll tell you why I didn't in a moment if we get to some more questions about the sermon. But um, but um, mo- I researched this very question, listener. Um, I And so I have several. I pulled up my notes here. I have several direct quotes from uh, Bible scholars that I respect. Um, and so here's one of them who says, However, as long as you remember that Melchizedek is a type pointing to the greater reality, it's not necessary to go that far and supernaturalize his very existence. Because the story, now no longer quoting that person, the story is clearly rooted in history. And in the Old Testament, we are told when, some, when an angelic character is an angel, we're also told uh, when there's uh, when the Spirit of God is an actor in the story in a very unique way, and a couple of times uh, uh, the angel of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament, and those are instances when uh, when some folks wonder is that the pre-incarnate Christ, not not the angel. The um, I'm drawing a blank on the exact phrasing, but none of that is here, and so. Just for a moment longer, the purpose of the writer of Hebrews, who goes in and out of treating Melchizedek theologically as a precursor or a foreshadowing or a type of the coming Messiah, embedded here way back at the beginning of the story of God's covenant with God's people. The Hebrews author, the reason the book of Hebrews is called Hebrews in the New Testament is that writer is a gospel preacher in the first century A.D. writing to Christians who have come to faith in Jesus out of a Jewish faith and background. And the occasion is that many of them are being pulled or tempted or themselves are considering going back to the Jewish faith. And to the Jewish faith. Uh and so the, the intricate argument here is, has several points, but the primary point is this. The, the, the point they're getting to is that Jesus' priesthood, his sacrifice, uh, that after it was symbolized, God symbolized it by ripping the veil mm-hmm. to the Holy of Holies in the temple where the high priest would once a year make an atoning sacrifice. That veil is ripped saying those sacrifices are no longer necessary because Christ is the eternal high priest who has sacrificed once and for all. So he's arguing that because of this, Jesus is the superior high priest to those who are still, when the writer of Hebrews is writing, the, there's a high priest making sacrifices in the Jewish temple. And, and some of the Hebrew Christians are wanting to kind of go back to that high priest that they can see and touch and see where Jesus has ascended to the throne. And so that's the main point. But to make that point, he goes back and says the, the current Jewish high priest 
is from the, the, the line, uh, the Levitical line, one tribe in Israel. And so it's an inherited thing. It's derived from family lineage all the way back to Abraham and then the sons of Joseph. So now here's the turn to Melchizedek. Since they, uh, when Abraham, excuse me, my phone is going off. When <laughs> Abraham um, tithed to Melchizedek in his worship, the Hebrews author makes this very clear point. He is saying that he is the inferior and he is submitting to his superior in the faith, the priest of Most High God. Therefore, the, this, is, this is the argument that made sense to the Hebrew Christians at the time in the early church. Therefore, the, his descendants are, so to speak, in Abraham's loins mm-hmm. <laughs> on that moment. And so the descended priesthood that is descended from Abraham and then the sons of Jacob and the tribe uh, of Levi are through Abraham's tithing to Melchizedek, they are inferior to Melchizedek's priesthood. And that Melchizedek, because the author of Genesis does not give us his lineage, uh, how he was born, who he came from, and how he died. The point is not, therefore, he's a superhuman. The point is, his lineage, the fact that he was a priest superior to Abraham, had nothing to do with being descended from a a certain Hebrew tribe. It was appointed by God and therefore superior. And, And then the Hebrews author turns the lens on Jesus appropriately and says, Jesus, Melchizedek was a type, and Jesus is in, the, in that line of priesthood. Because remember, Jesus' lineage is kingly. It's from the line of King David. He was not a priest. And yet he's called in the, by the author of Hebrews the high priest of our faith. And so he's arguing that not only is, is Jesus of the lineage of King David, and therefore he is our king and our leader and our Lord, but he is appointed high priest by God specially in the way that Melchizedek was. And so that's the answer to the question, and you can all wake up now. No, I think I think it—I mean, I've always wondered with that, without having done a, a deep dive into it, as I've read the book of Hebrews, it just has felt—it's felt so random that out of all—there's there, so many, like, better-known characters, right, uh, that were priests— throughout the old Testament that you, it feels like you would point to one of those guys and yes, be like, yes, uh, if the explanation you gave, I feel like makes it feel a lot less random for the author of Hebrews because of the connection to Abraham, who, who was so revered as a, as and a the father superior to mm-hmm. the, the high priest in, in the early church's day when the book of Hebrews was written. Okay, and and it would have been interesting. The the last paragraph that I actually cut out, <laughs> uh, uh, deleted in, in my sermon notes Saturday night, was that um, Melchizedek is an example of things that were real in the Old Testament, and they had a significance in their day. God was telling His story to the people in that day, but they also were a type. Um, it was a, there's a, a typology that was also beginning to shine a faint glimmer ahead 
of the nature of our salvation through the Messiah. One other example of that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When God revealed his covenant, made his covenant with his people, particularly revealed it most clearly through Moses at Sinai, there became this function of the Lamb of God Hmm. upon whom the sins of the, the Hebrew people were placed vicariously, annually. And then either there were some lambs of God that were slaughtered in a bloody sacrifice. There was another type of sacrifice in which it was released into the wilderness. Um, uh, That is a type. And then in the New Testament, obviously, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The connection is super clear, and we're we're more familiar with that. That Lamb of God in the time of Moses, from the time of Moses all the way up to the, the temple at the time of Jesus, that Lamb of God was an actual lamb, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and it had a function, and God did spiritual things uh, on behalf of people's actions and activity with the Lamb of God. But it is a type or a foreshadow or helps us understand even better the nature of our great salvation effected once and for all through Jesus. So let me ask a a follow-up to that that's in a little bit of a different direction. So, first of all, set up a context. You mentioned the the veil being torn. That's one of the really neat parts of the story of uh, that we see around the death of Jesus is this very symbolic act where the the curtain in the in the temple that basically separates the the people from the high priest the one that is able to speak to God that's torn and from the presence of God himself and from the presence of yeah there there was a there was an area of the temple that uh, I mean think think Indiana Jones you can't go in there or yeah. something bad's gonna happen yeah. to you because the presence of God was so strong there that the only the specific person or yes. person really the high priest that that he said was able to go in there. And he only goes in there once a year. And they tied a or rope. Went. They tied a rope around his leg. Yeah, in case he had unconfessed sin in his life or something and he gets he can't survive the presence of yeah, God. Yeah, they literally can pull him out without having to go in there. So all that to say, there was there was something that happened um, with the death of Jesus that uh, we all have this access to God and to the presence of God that we have not had before. So we all, as Christ followers, we, we, have, we have access to understand who God is through his word and to study and to understand, and that's something that we're all called to do. But a special role that you and some of the other uh, people here at our church who preach God's word is you guys have the really neat calling of spending the time to dig in and understand some parts of scripture that that people who are working 40 hours a week doing something else, no matter how, how much their desire is, they're they're not ever going to have the time to do that. So what God has called you and our other, uh, our our other teachers to is to say, I, I am giving you the calling to help folks gain a better understanding of what God's word says. It's not that other people can't do it. There's, it's just, that's, that's the part of the body that God mm-hmm. has called you guys mm-hmm. to be specifically. So my question is this, as you're, as you're, as you're understanding how to take a passage of scripture and to teach it, um, you mentioned talking about 
Melchizedek as as a possible figure, pre-incarnate figure of Christ. I think there's a, a tendency for us, especially as Christians, as we look back through the Old Testament, is to, like we got our magnifying glass and we're looking for like little glimpses of Jesus everywhere. So how mm-hmm. do you decide, um, you know, when when to really strongly apply that to see a connection back to Christ or when you look at something, you just say, no, this was just about whoever the story is about. It's God is sharing us. that's important in his story. Where do you, how do you not over apply or is there a danger that, or is there crisis in everything? <laughs> you know, good, good question. Um, uh, I had this discussion with the uh, doctoral students that I spend time advising a few times a year. Uh, we were, on this direct question, let me get into it by telling you how I approached last week's sermon on Melchizedek. Uh, you all know me. If you've been at Lake Forest for more than a week, actually this week, if you've been there only one week, yep. you know that, that I'm, uh, I, I, I lean being very interested in history. That was my undergraduate degree. My doctoral dissertation was history-based. Uh, that's just that's, that's important for me and my own understanding how, how I'm wired. Um, and, and I, I try to not overdo it in the sermons. Um, so as I approached this passage, I chose, I was the one who raised my hand and said, I want to do Melchizedek this summer in this God story series. And I did that because I've never done a deep dive study on that encounter with Melchizedek. And it's always intrigued me, particularly the question that I dealt with in the sermon, where did his faith in the one true God come from in the midst of a polytheistic pagan society? before monotheism was a thing. God was in the process of revealing monotheism to Abraham at the moment of this story. That's always intrigued me. It's, uh, it's actually helped me to, to be humble about the things that are not, that God chooses not to reveal distinctly and clearly. For me to be humble, to not over-assert that I know things that are not directly taught in Scripture. Um, for example, when people ask me, what happens to, to other people in other religions or who never heard the name of Christ when they die related to God? My number one answer is I do not know. Uh, and then I might at some point bring up Melchizedek and say I, that's just an example of one thing we see in Scripture, one example of how God dealt with someone who was not a part of the covenant, the old covenant or the new covenant community. And uh, and it just leads me to be even more sure that I don't know and I will never state definitively of the destiny or the relationship with God of someone. Um, uh, yeah, and, someti- and sometimes in, in those, all, you, all we can cling to is through all of Scripture, understanding the big picture character of who God is and just kind of being like, Mm-hmm. We're gonna trust him to be who he is. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and yet he's very clear that there's no way to be made right with God except through Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, how that was applied to Melchizedek, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I approach this sermon, and um, number one answer to your question is, I am a firm proponent and teacher that every message preached in a Christian worship service at some point must uh, point to 
or find its conclusion or its anchor or its power in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it could be a lecture on ethics or ask yourself, I tell preachers, ask yourself, would that sermon have fit fully in a Jewish synagogue and been appropriate? If so, it was not fully Christian. Um, Our faith is anchored in Christ, and he is the consummation of God's revelation of himself through the Old and New Covenant. On the other hand, every article I've read or I kind of looked around at how, how do people treat Melchizedek in sermons? And there's really basically one way it's done, which is uh, a tiny little bit of the story of Melchizedek and Abraham, and then camping out in the book of Hebrews, how Melchizedek is a type of Christ, what this means about Christ. That is a beautiful way to preach, but I felt like, number one, I didn't want to preach a conventional sermon on Melchizedek. That felt boring to me. Number two, that's more a sermon on the book of Hebrews than it is on Melchizedek. Uh, And so I set the challenge for myself to study, to learn all that I could about who who might Melchizedek have been, what was going on at that time, what what archaeological records do we have, what what is going on in the in the actual Hebrew words here mm-hmm. recounting this incident. And I wanted that to be the primary focus of the sermon because the book of Genesis was written for the edification of God's people long before the Messiah came, Jesus. So therefore it has edification, it has meaning, it has value for our lives. And it reveals something about God's character for us in and of itself. So I made this choice. I mean, I'm actually sitting in my study at home thinking these thoughts, and I wrote that down to myself. I want this sermon to be 80% anchored in this text. I don't want to jump out of the text. I, I want to be have integrity to what the writer, Moses or, or one of his people, generally is, uh, 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 we think, wrote the book of Genesis. And uh, I wanted to, with integrity, deal with what was God revealing through the author to God's people when this was recounted. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did for 80% of the sermon. Uh, and I really enjoyed doing that. And I, it was obscure, it, it was a whole bunch of pages of research into finding out information that, that, that he was likely an Amorite and what do we know about Amorite society and I have pages and pages of that, by the way, here on my laptop if you're interested. Um, and uh, let's see, one small detail. Uh, the, the Canaanite religion at the time of Abraham and Melchizedek that was polytheistic, they did have a word for an over-God. A, and it was related to some of the, one of the words used by Melchizedek for God here in Genesis 14. So they had a word for like a, a god over all the gods, uh, not unlike the the Norse, uh, the Vikings, who worshipped multiple gods, but they they also spoke of an all father, hmm. is the translation of their word. Uh, but the Amorites were known to not emphasize worship of that over god, but to uh, the archaeological record shows that they uh, most commonly uh, highlighted. M- the, the lowest forms of the gods, those most almost worshiping the creation, you know, the really specific, uh, and some of the most base forms, including 
uh, child sacrifice to a god named Moloch. Um, uh, so that's an example. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't. So when I spoke what I did about the society Melchizedek came from and how remarkable he had been, God had revealed himself to him by some means that he's the most high God. Um, that's behind my statements that I made is that kind of research. So then I really enjoyed my methodology of understanding the passage and the meaning of that he's a priest and a king and these things. And what was Abraham's frame of mind? He was coming to do a treaty, business deal or political deal. And that so the, my primary insight came toward the end of the week, two days into studying this. Oh, Melchizedek spoke blessing. And, and it was because we'd named the sermon series what we did. Hmm. When all of us pastors were together pl- and staff planning the sermon series, we're very careful and prayerful about the naming of the series uh, for your sake and ours, that, 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 that the parts of Scripture we study might stick with us better because of a handle. And so Harrison, that handle of God's stories actually gave me the lens. Melchizedek is the actor in the story, the character. He, his main role was he, he heard God in that moment and spoke blessing and the presence of God and he elevated it uh, to a God story and a God moment. So it was almost two days of research, Harrison, before then I ran it back through the series lens and wrote it up the way that I did. Cool. And then, yes, it would have been irresponsible of me to not get to the book of Hebrews. Sure. And, of course, that's where I ran out of time, but I, I, I needed to point to God, the ultimate provision of a priest, uh, the ultimate provision of a king is through the Messiah, Jesus. Well, be, be, And because that was, that was a clear... There are some parts of the New Testament that give us Melchizedek is maybe the best example possibly because mm-hmm. of there was not much mm-hmm. said about him in, in Genesis where the New Testament raises a big flag and is like, hey, look at this connection here. I'm gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna make this really clear so that in those instances it's it's even more uh, it's I don't know if accurate's the right word, but it's it's more. Uh, honest for us to interpret Melchizedek in the Old Testament through the lens because Hebrews has made it crystal clear. We yes. don't have to do a bunch of yes. guesswork on yes. what they're trying to tell us about his role and who yes. he was. So in, in the, the doctoral class where we discussed this question, preaching the Old Testament in a, in a Christian church, actually the other presenter and I dis- strongly disagreed. <laughs> he is okay preaching, let's say, David and Goliath, and preaching about what we learn about character, about courage, about owning our youthful calling to God, things that you would preach out of David and Goliath's encounter, he is okay if the sermon in a church worship service does not turn to how does this story fit into the larger story that culminates with Jesus. Hmm. And I 100% disagreed with him. Um, I, I I think that's irresponsible. I think it, it, it leaves Christians in the congregation with the temptation of seeing God's Word as disconnected stories mm-hmm. uh, or morality stories. Um, they are different stories. They do teach us about morality and ethics, but even that is rooted in the larger story, which is the character of God, 
It's not disembodied morality. It's only found in the character of the living God. And then it all is pointing, ultimately everything in Scripture, toward the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his role in, in the, so, the beautiful sovereign plan that God is uh, working all things together for the good of those who love him and will culminate in his return. So I, I have a distinct point of view, and that is actually, Harrison, I actually kind of didn't know this till I was arguing with this guy, very friendly. He's a man I respect, very accomplished in ministry. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it till he said it, that the view that I just espoused is actually a, a more reformed or even Presbyterian hmm. tendency. I didn't. So there's another reason, Harrison, why I didn't grow up Presbyterian or reformed in my faith. I realized through seminary and the study of God's Word and theology that I encounter the Bible as best described through the lens of the reformed faith, and that's why I've chosen to be in this denomination. And I think um, we who sit under your guys teaching are are thankful because like we said there's there's only so much time and there's a level of there's a level of trust that our church has in you guys who speak to to be um honest and not 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 take things and twist them we have i mean it's a, a major problem that we see throughout the church and even our culture is that there are folks who can take God's word and twist it to mean about anything they want, but there is an approach yes. that that you can take where you look at it honestly and directly. And there's a method of, st- of studying scripture that you guys use where you're going to say, I'm not going to try to make this say anything other than what God's word is making. It's it clear that it's saying, and I'm going to check it against the best scholarship of 2000 years, the best holy, sacred spirit filled scholarship. This is one of the. Uh, this is another distinctive of the Presbyterian Church, and one reason why we're in the EPC. We have a high value of the importance of having theologically educated clergy or pastors. It's something that we insist upon in our any church planter of a Lake Forest family of church or anyone who gets ordained here. And they don't have to have had the same educational path precisely, but um, we we believe that protects God's people and God's church from uh, unintentional error or falling into uh, errors in the past um, because they've all been trained in a, in a certain method, a responsible methodology of how we study Scripture, how we interpret it. Um, yeah, so so that's, a, that's like a peel back at mm-hmm. how I engaged with this part of God's Word, and it was all last week. This was not one that I had, with, that, with the pandemic, I'm not... Normally, it's been my habit, once a month, I go to the mountains somewhere for three or four days, and I work ahead on a bunch of sermons. I haven't been doing that for months now, and so I'm, I'm a little more working in real time, which has some benefits to it and some down uh, turns to it, but that's how I engage that in a seven-day period, and I probably actually put more time into that sermon than hmm. uh, some normal sermons and I enjoyed it, um, and I hope it was edifying to, to those who listened. Harrison, while we're talking about preaching, maybe we sure. can finish up with, with one more thing about methodology sure. of preaching. Just pull back the curtain just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so two weeks ago, I was the week that I teach my one-week intensive seminary course on, called Church Planting in a Postmodern Context. Super fun. 
had 12 students, uh, one planning a church in Lithuania, one in Puerto Rico, uh, others from different states around the country. Uh, it was accessible. Instead of them having to travel here, it was all Zoom, 8.30 to 5 p.m. all day, every day for a solid week. My butt got tired. Um, but, I, but we really engaged as a class. I think the thing on preaching in a church plant that, that they found most— I'm going to share it here because I saw the most universal note-taking in this little part. I said, as a practical matter, I have priorities in my preaching um, due to the mission and vision of this church and my unique calling. I said, so—and they're like, well, how do you remember that every week? I'm like, well, my best self remembers it, and so my best self tells my normal Saturday night weekly self— and the way I do that is I have a recurring Outlook appointment on my Outlook calendar. Mm. And it pops up uh, 9 o'clock every Saturday night because that's about when I return from wherever I left the th- sermon on Thursday afternoon or evening. And that Outlook calendar asked me, my better self asked my every Saturday night nacho eating self, sports watching, not now though. I know. It's really lame what I have on TV now on Saturday night while I'm sermonating. Last week, uh, I believe, it, two weeks ago, it was Beverly Hills Cop 1 and then 2 came on because uh, I was working late into the night. You just got to keep it rolling. <coughs> <laughs> We're not going to fall off of the banana in the tailpipe. No. Um, so, but that appointment, it says four questions to me. Mike, where are you addressing and applying this scripture to longtime Christians? And uh, number two, Mike, where are you directly addressing verbally an unchurched or a inquiring person who doesn't know if they're a Christian? And, and that's so those are the first two questions. That's so that people know that that this word does they're not guessing which part of this applies to me. I don't want longtime followers of Jesus to hear me address, a skeptic or a spiritual explorer, and think, oh, that was a sermon just for non-Christians mm-hmm. or quote-unquote seekers. I don't ever use that word because it implies a certain style of church and preaching, which we are not. But Christians will mistake me if I only say, if, if I assume they think, if I assume they know it's all for them. So, so you'll notice me stop and say, you know, for the junior Bible scholars like me, blah, blah, blah. And then... Uh, we found that spiritual explorers or unchurched people find themselves pleasantly surprised when me or another of our preachers actually says, I, I planned on you being here. Hmm. That means to them that they belong, they're welcome, they don't have to hide the fact that they don't buy into this or understand it yet. So those are my first two questions. The, second que- the third one, uh, really it's just three. The third one is, Mike, at the end... By the end of this sermon, how is it more about the grace of God and what he's done for us rather than it, it being more about what I'm supposed to do for him? Hmm. Um, because the gospel enables God to gift me with everything I need through Christ. Uh, it is not about me doing so that I can get from him. Now, his grace motivates me doing, but I have a lens every Saturday night uh, that's my gospel or my grace of God focused lens. Hmm. Another another part that I love about those first two questions is it really also is a clear communication to the folks who call Lake Forest home that 
um, hey, every every time we're sitting down together, we're setting extra plates at the table because it's, mm. it's, it's not just us here and we're not the only ones that are invited. Jesus made that super clear numerous times in numerous parables that w- when you when you tip to that, that's just setting the picture for people that um, people who have been here a long time or consider themselves Christ followers are we are called to to grow um but there's also some some places set here for other folks and that's always gonna be the case our church and every one of us ministry partners we live on a mission field (laughs) this is a post-christian society and we're to live with the lens of a missionary and so when i insert that into a sermon it is in part thank you for noticing that helping to form the biblical imagination of every person at Lake Forest to go, oh, that's the lens for me to live on mission with uh, in in my everyday life. Harrison, um, interesting to talk through a little bit of methodology of preaching, and thank you, ministry partner, for that astute question. Very good stuff. I think that'll wrap us, uh, that'll wrap us up for this week. We thank you guys again for joining us. Uh, keep sending in some questions to us, and uh, We are excited when the day comes where we get to see your faces even more here in our building soon. We're missing connecting with you guys. It'll first be only a few faces, but even that will be encouraging to me, will help me. And it'll be those faces who need it most and may be struggling to fight through online worship. And so we're going to, we're working soon to provide limited number of spaces and knowing that it's going to be most wise for most to continue to worship online for quite some time. Yep, and like we've said, just worth repeating again, that uh, when that comes for a while, we're following best practices. There, We're not going to have uh, any stuff uh, specifically for kids for now. Mm-hmm. Just uh, there's there's no great way to do that. Kids, I'll tell you, tell you from my own younger ones, my youngest two are three and seven. Social distancing is not a phrase that exists <laughs> in their world. Yeah, yeah. Everything is, yeah. everything is close. So we, uh, we look forward to, uh, catching some of you guys soon, but we'll continue being together online as we have been, uh, worshiping together and being in community that way as well. So we'll catch you guys soon.